and welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Bob Weathers. I'm happy to be here with you with my friend. Odie Martinez. Yeah, we welcome you for uh, joining us. If it's the first time, welcome aboard. And if you've come back, thank you for your loyalty. Uh, really appreciate your uh, checking us out today. And also want you to know that there's a repository of previous uh, podcasts that we have almost a year now in the can, so to speak. And you can access uh, archives at numerous locations. You can go to uh, Beginnings Treatment Centers, our sponsor for today, and I want to thank you to them. Go to beginningstreatmentcenters.com and you'd find the podcast archive there. You can also go to YouTube and you may be joining us from the Facebook group, Ask Addiction Specialists, and there's a whole backlog there. So there's a number of places where you can access what we've covered in the last year. Odie's joined me in the last several months, and it's been a quantum leap in quality because <laughs> it's moved into interaction. In fact, we'll be talking about how it is that uh, both addiction and recovery themselves are so rooted in relationship. We'll be talking about that today. Uh, let me introduce a, a, a word about myself just to kind of give context for today's conversation. And then we're going to dive right in with a, a mindfulness exercise in just a mm -hmm. moment. My background is in clinical psychology. Uh, my PhD is in clinical psychology. And I've been, uh, most of my career I've taught in university settings, including right now. I'm a professor of, of uh, psychology at California Southern University. And uh, what that affords me is the opportunity to review doctoral dissertations on a weekly basis. And I'm working closely with uh, about almost 30 students right now across uh, the world. They're doing their dissertations, uh, not only in clinical psychology, but specifically most of them are dealing with addiction and related areas, uh, trauma, um, uh, mindfulness, um, recovery, uh, and, uh, and, and addiction writ large, something that I've really appreciated about your presence, Odie, is that it's expanded our opportunity to talk about addiction, not just in a narrow sense. Uh, as it is right now, 25% of Americans over the age of 12 are addicted to psychoactive substance, if we include alcohol, nicotine, and other psychoactive drugs. The only drug that we exclude is um, caffeine, or yeah, caffeine. Uh, and I, I, I would say, and also we exclude Snickers. It's <laughs> a little inside joke when I got here today. Odie brought some Halloween candy. And so so I, I know it's quite possible to be addicted to Snickers. Oh, yeah. Anyway, I resisted today. But, uh, but if we look at uh, uh, drugs that really what they do is they alter our consciousness. And the, the primary drugs being alcohol, nicotine, and uh, other psychoactive uh, drugs uh, specific to um, uh, recreational and oftentimes illegal drugs, 25% of Americans are addicted right now. A sad uh, accompanying statistic to that is only 10% of those individuals uh, are in treatment right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So it means that, that although 25% are addicted, only 2.5% only actually are in treatment, which suggests that there's a big gap there. That 90% gap of those that aren't in treatment really correlates highly with the opioid epidemic right now. And what mm -hmm. we're seeing in terms of deaths is so many people are dying owing to uh, painkillers uh, and uh, street drugs like heroin and fentanyl and uh, without treatment. So it's a tragic statistic. Um, but if we expand addiction, and this is where I was headed a minute ago, to include behavioral addictions, and uh, some of the, the most widely known addictions, behavioral addictions, include uh, gambling, uh, various kinds of eating disorders, 
various forms of sexual addiction, including porn addiction, which is something that we've talked about here together. Um, in fact, the list goes on from there. Uh, these days, with the internet uh, and video games, uh, uh, virtually any behavior that that gets to a place where you cannot stop it and it's eroding either your work life or your relationship mm -hmm. life uh, is worthy of being considered an addiction. 90% of Americans say that they have currently at least one behavioral addiction, which is to suggest that we're talking about a universal topic. And so uh, I started by talking about the work that I do in the university. I'm supervising dissertations looking at every form of uh, behavioral addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, working with one student right now who's working with um, uh, female athletes that operate at like Division A uh, sports that uh, have various kinds of eating disorders. And mm -hmm. so uh, it becomes an addictive cycle for, for many of them. Um, looking for sure at, at several dissertations, looking at various forms of sexual addiction. Um, uh, it ends up being a universal problem that's worthy of our consideration. In fact, uh, the work that I do uh, now in my own career, having uh, experienced my own uh, experience with substance addiction and I'm currently in recovery is I work as a recovery coach. And so that means that before I come here each week, I lead a group at beginnings. I work at uh, several different locations where I lead groups during the week. I think I lead eight groups at last mm -hmm. count on a weekly basis. And then I have clients here locally as well as um, internationally because of Skype and Zoom technology. I have clients. Uh, this morning I met with a client from Europe uh, because of the time difference. Mm -hmm. We start early and it's late there in Europe. And uh, I really, really find the work meaningful. And what I drew is I bring my background in psychology to the work of recovery as I bring it here. Which brings me to uh, uh, the topics of the day. Uh, what we're going to do, if, if, if you weren't here last week, let me just say that we got about halfway through uh, our presentation last week, which I felt like was a resounding success, mm -hmm. is that there was a lot of dialogue with our audience, and I encourage that today. You can write in your questions. Austin Armstrong, our producer in, in, uh, uh, in the room, in the studio right here. Thank you, Austin. He'll be the moderator of those comments, and he'll send those to Odie and I, who's also a producer of this presentation. They both wear many hats. And uh, you're very welcome to interact with us in real time, and you can send in your comments through the Ask an Addiction Specialist Facebook uh, site. And uh, Austin will send those to us, and we'll interact with you. We got about halfway through our presentation last week, which was on the roots of addiction. And specifically, we were looking at psychological roots. And we were talking about two different factors that are intertwined. We talked about stress. Stress as being the number one trigger for relapse uh, to whatever addictive behaviors we have. And we've talked in various times about the logic of that. In shorthand, it goes like this. To the extent that I'm stressed, my um, stress hormones kick up in my body, specifically cortisol and adrenaline. And when those kick up, they manifest as distress. And so it will manifest as anxiety, as a tension problem. Sometimes it goes into depression. And uh, for sure, one thing is, is, is that, is that those, those stress hormones, if they stay in our bodies, uh, they're meant to just be there for a short burst to motivate us to act, like a fight-or-flight reaction. Right. Something comes in that's fearful, I need to be able to react quickly. But if I stay in, in a situation where I'm basically bathing in those chemicals, they're quite corrosive. They're quite corrosive. And so they'll lead to biological distress, ulcers comes to mind, mm -hmm. uh, various kinds of physical disorders, as well as psychological manifestations like depression and anxiety and so on. Now, where does addiction relate to this? Well, most addictive behaviors directly address that stress system by temporarily kicking up dopamine, 
as, as one neurotransmitter in the brain that will help regulate the teeter-totter. So if my cortisol is high, I can get dopamine to kick into my system through not only addictive substances, but behaviors, and it will regulate, at least temporarily, mm -hmm. the cortisol and the adrenaline. And so I'll feel better temporarily. The problem is, is the body doesn't like to be out of whack. And so if I get an over overabundance of dopamine in my system, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask my friend Odie, what do you think the body kicks in to help restore balance when the dopamine is high? Kicks in the cortisol. Very good. <laughs> Correct answer, you get a little brownie bone. No, exactly. And so the body is in this equilibrium. Um, this um, It's in this kind of state of always wanting to be balanced. And so if there's too much cortisol, it makes sense that we'll crave something that will resolve that temporarily. Mm -hmm. And all of the addictive behaviors, it's curious, is that I can be addicted to heroin mm -hmm. and you can be addicted to gambling. Mm -hmm. And if you hook us up to brain scans, our inactive addiction, our brains look identical. Mm. The same brain systems are activated for Odie's gambling and Bob's heroin addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the difference will be in, in terms of intensity of release, but the very same brain systems, and it effectively reduces the stress, the stress response yeah. temporarily. But when the body gets too much of an overabundance of, for example, dopamine and other neurotransmitters, for example, endorphins in the opioid right. system, those get kicked in, the body will kick in stress to regulate that. And the hence what you get is that, is that you get this teeter-totter going back and forth. And most of the people I know, because I work primarily with people that are recovering from very serious substance addiction, I mentioned heroin, methamphetamine, is that most of them, what they'll report to me is they no longer get high, mm -hmm. they're just trying to not get sick. Mm -hmm. And by sick, what they mean is withdrawal symptoms. Right. And we just discussed the biology of withdrawal. Mm. Withdrawal is basically too much stress hormone in the body and it will manifest as sweating, the shakes, irritability, mm -hmm. and a longing for the, the addictive behavior, uh, addictive substance or behavior mm -hmm. to regulate the body. So, so stress is the number one trigger for relapse yeah. and everybody that is addicted, which is all of us, <laughs> excuse me for being so grim <laughs> about it, I just like to include us all in the human condition. All of us know about addictive behaviors. Uh, it, whether it's a Snickers bar or, or a, a line of cocaine, it, all of us know about addictive behaviors, and all of them head towards the, the same end, which is to help, to help regulate our bodies. This is referred to in uh, medicine and psychology as the self-medication hypothesis. So if somebody says, Odie, mm -hmm. why can't you just say no to your addiction? Or Bob, why can't you just say no to your addiction? The truth is I can, and you can too. Yeah. Temporarily, I can say no to whatever behavior I've done. Um, uh, if, if I'm addicted to meth, I can say no to that temporarily. Mm -hmm. But what I can't say no to is what happens in the brain, and we discussed that in terms of craving. I can't say no to craving the methamphetamine mm -hmm. or whatever the behavior is. I can say no to the behavior temporarily. The fact of the matter is, is I can say no uh, to the behavior on a good day, mm -hmm. it's gonna be harder to say no to the craving, and then if you introduce me to increasing stress, yeah. whether internally or externally, it's gonna be harder and harder to hang on to that resolve. Mm -hmm. And that's the fact, is that is that's the basis of understanding uh, uh, relapse, is right. that eventually, under stress, that resolve, and with the cravings thrown in, is gonna make me want to uh, resort to the addictive behavior. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now we've talked, because we talk from a psychological perspective here a fair bit, We've talked and we introduced last week talking about shame. The relevance of shame to this conversation is that shame um, from uh, 200 different studies that have been done, shame is the most stressful human emotion. 
It's the hardest one to bear. Harder than anger, harder than fear, harder than disgust is shame. And uh, I won't go into discussing why that's the case right now, but I will say it is the case. And we'll talk into that as we review last week's presentation. But in the spirit of honoring what we're talking about is if you think of stress as the overarching umbrella. In fact, yesterday I was leading a group and an individual said, well, you said that stress was the number one trigger for relapse, but I thought resentment was. Mm. This is somebody who's very active in the 12-step programs. And oftentimes what you get in the 12-step programs, AA, NA, and so on, is the discussion of resentments. Your resentments mm -hmm. are your biggest enemy in terms of your sobriety. Mm -hmm. And my response to this gentleman was, you're absolutely right. Resentment actually fits under the umbrella of stress because to have resentment towards somebody is to hold that. I remember how the Bible talks about this, having a burning coal in a sense, yeah. is to hold resentment towards somebody is to, is to carry a fair bit of stress. And one person's resentment will lead to stress. Another person's boredom will lead to stress. Mm -hmm. And so on it goes. All of us have yeah. a long laundry list of things that stress us out. That's one of them. You want to say something? No, I'm just I'm okay. taking all right. it all in. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll okay. interrupt if I have. Good, good. <laughs> Somebody brought this up to me the other day in a group, uh -huh. and I said, I grew up in a family where we would interact at the, at the dinner table uh, fairly actively, and I actively encourage crosstalk. <laughs> you know, in some of the 12-step programs, it's discouraged. Yeah, you know, you take turns and so on. And I really like it when people jump in, and I think there's room for both. So I think yeah. you know me by now to know that you can just I interrupt remember, me. Yeah, when I was in uh, CR, Celebrate Recovery, mm -hmm. uh, that was one of the things. There is, we would read the mm -hmm. list of rules or whatever, mm -hmm. and then everybody would exclamate that one part. There is no cross-talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's huge value to that, especially in a room of rambunctious people early in recovery to take turns and to make sure that everybody has their own privacy and kind of space and so on. Yeah. And here we just, we encourage collisions. <laughs> okay, okay. Right. Um, what I'd like to start with then, uh, before we, what we're going to do uh, in a moment uh, after our meditation is we're gonna, we're gonna review where we went last week and get right up to where we left off and we have another exercise. And so we'll do that in a moment, but I thought it'd be really valuable, uh, especially if you're a new uh, uh, participant with us today, that'd be really valuable to review a very basic uh, exercise in mindfulness. And the goal of this is simply put, is to reduce stress. And it's to provide uh, tools for you where you can practice this uh, my goal would be in the next five minutes that you would experience a reduction of stress, and that would be good. Chances are you will. It's possible you won't, and we'll talk about that afterwards, because sometimes stopping to pause and be mindful actually can stir up more anxiety for some individuals. Mm. And I certainly have experienced that over the years in meditation. But chances are you will experience at least momentarily a reduction in stress. Uh, uh, the key to anything that we do to reduce stress is the regular practice of it because you actually can build up a baseline of generally reduced stress. And so today's exercise, while it's just going to be momentary, is something that if you find valuable and were to repeat it, I think that you could, uh, well, I'm pretty confident that you would experience a general lowering of your baseline of stress. So in the spirit of honoring uh, the centrality of stress, in recovery, we'll have a stress reduction exercise in just a moment. Let me introduce it further by saying, I was thinking of it as I was waiting this uh, before we started today. It was 33 years ago, 33 years ago, I completed my doctoral dissertation uh, on mindfulness uh, meditation. Um, 
there really wasn't that much research in psychology on mindfulness then. And nowadays, you can see it on the covers of magazines in the grocery store as yeah. you check out, mm-hmm. and it's fairly commonplace. Um, and uh, I, I, you know, I really lucked out, I have to tell you that, with my, with my doctoral dissertation, because I got to spend two years studying mindfulness. I think in one year I read 50 books on mindfulness. There, mm-hmm. were, there was a large literature, it just wasn't in psychology. Mm-hmm. There's a large literature in the various religious traditions. You, you get Christian and Jewish traditions that utilize variations on mindfulness. Certainly the Eastern traditions of Buddhism and mm-hmm. Hinduism have lengthy uh, histories of dealing with mindfulness. And, and it was just the beginning of research being done. For example, at Harvard, John Kabat-Zinn began writing his studies right at about the same time that I was doing my doctoral dissertation. And he's been instrumental in mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, uh, methodology. He's kind of the guru of that. He's been at it for he's been at it for 33 years because that's how long it's been since I did my dissertation. So uh, I've had a chance to kind of refine and practice this over the years. And I, I want to say two things. One is that I think this can be very helpful. I want to say a second thing is that. Uh, I've talked about it at various times. My own history with addiction mm-hmm. is I got addicted in midlife. And so here's the irony. I meditated for not just a year or two, but for a decade or two before I actually uh, developed a severe uh, addiction to substance. Mm. And so I I think what I want to suggest in full disclosure is there's no magic bullet in this. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important that we uh, have as many arrows in our quiver as possible. I think uh, stress reduction techniques are a significant part of that, but it it isn't enough and wasn't enough. And in fact, today, later, when we do our exercise, Odie, Mm -hmm. I, I plan to share as my part of it. I hope that you'll share too. I plan to share with you some parts of my own uh, life that were not addressed by my meditation practice that actually came back to really uh, uh, haunt me and I think really contributed to my mm-hmm. addiction. So let me suggest, as much as I'd like to say that this is the magic bullet that will fix everything, it's an important arrow in your quiver, but it's just one of many. I, I have a lot of faith in mindfulness and, uh, and that's why we're doing it. And then we're gonna flesh out, I think, some psychological roots of addiction beyond just stress mm-hmm. in a few minutes. So if you'll join me right now, I'll talk us through this exercise and I think it will take us seven minutes. <laughs> that's what happens when you practice meditation for a long time. You get to know how long it takes to do these things. So, By the way, what I'm gonna be doing is just talking out what I do most every morning. Uh, including this morning, I get up and I, I practice this in the morning. It's just kind of, kind of resetting things. I don't know if you've ever gone bowling before. Have you ever gone? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you bowl and you knock down the pins, and sometimes it doesn't knock them all down. So you have to press a button that resets them. It reset. It puts them all back up again. I think of my meditation in the morning as like pressing the reset button. So I wake up in the morning. I'm usually kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of shocked by waking up in the day. Some people wake up bright and bouncy. It takes me a while to wake up. <laughs> But I start very first thing in the morning uh, uh, after my uh, after my bowl of quinoa as I meditate, and uh, it really is like pressing that little button that resets things. So I hear in the spirit of resetting. I hope that this helps you reset. So if you'll join me, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. I won't be doing anything visual that you need to look at, and if if you're uh, able to do that, wonderful. And if not, uh, I encourage you to. Maybe lower your eyes, and it's really meant just to reduce distraction. I'll close my eyes and invite you to do the same, and I'll just talk us through this exercise uh, for the next five, seven minutes. So let's start by taking in a deep breath. 
Release that when you're ready. Take in another deep breath. Hold that and let go when you're ready. On the next deep in-breath, notice your stomach rise when you breathe in and it falls slightly when you breathe out. We'll be using this uh, sensation of your breathing, especially down in your stomach area, we'll be using it as our anchor. So let's try that again. Breathing out, rising, breathing, excuse me, breathing in, rising, breathing out, falling. Try that again. Breathing in, rising, breathing out, falling. Now what I want to ask you to do is, is for the next couple of minutes, let's just focus on that rising and falling of our tummy. And uh, notice if any thoughts arise. Chances are there will be thoughts. Oftentimes it's planning for something in the future or a memory about the past. It's very natural for this to happen. But I want you to try something different if you've not done this exercise before, and that is when a thought arises, see if you can just label it without following it. That is to say, when a thought arises, just label it by calling it thinking, thinking, and then imagine setting it to the side. I imagine a shelf inside my mind setting it on the shelf just for now, and then bring my attention back to the rising and falling of my tummy. So it'll go like this, breathing in, rising, breathing out, falling, thinking, thinking, set the thought aside, back to the breathing in, rising, breathing out, falling. Let's try that for, let's say three full breath cycles. Just see how that goes to breathe in, Breathe out, label a, a thought. Don't follow the thought, just label it, set it aside, and bring your attention back to the breathing. After the next deep in-breath, as you release uh, all of your air, allow your weight just to fall. If you're sitting in a, in a chair, allow yourself just to be limp in the chair. It's like feeling gravity pull you down. If you're lying down the same, just allow, allow yourself to go into a relaxed, kind of letting go into gravity. So breathing in, breathing out, letting go into gravity. yourself just relax. Next, starting with your feet, gradually scan all the way up to your head and scan for now uh, with differences, noticing differences in temperature. 
There'll be certain parts of your body that feel cool relative to other parts feeling warm. For example, exposed skin typically will feel cooler than covered skin. And just take your time scanning from foot to head. How about two full breath cycles, just slowly scanning up your body, uh, noticing any differences between cool and warm. Another deep in-breath, the rising of the, of the stomach, out-breath, the falling of the stomach. Just notice that. Next, we're going to focus on seeing if it's possible to detect your heartbeat in your chest without putting your hand, for now, on your chest. So we're going to take two full breath cycles just to see if you can detect your heartbeat. It's quite subtle, but it's possible you'll be able to detect it from inside. So let's try that for two breath cycles. Now feel free to put your hand on your chest and feel your heartbeat directly into your palm. Let's do that for one breath cycle. Now lower your attention just slightly to your stomach and notice how you're feeling in your digestion right now. That is. If you've recently eaten, maybe you're feeling pleasantly satisfied or even full. If you haven't eaten for quite a while, maybe you're feeling some hunger. Maybe you're experiencing some digestion. Whatever you notice in your stomach and your digestive system right now, just make note of that. Let's use one breath cycle just to focus on our stomach. Just two more items now. The next one, let's start with our head and work our way down to our feet. And this time we're scanning for any muscle tension or any aches and pains, for example, in your joints. Let's take our time. So let's, let's take two breath cycles to scan from head to toe, again, for any muscle tension, any aches and pains, or maybe the absence of any of that. Just notice, take your time. Finally, uh, let's focus for just uh, a moment on what we hear. I'm sitting here with Odie and Austin, and all I hear are Austin's busy little fingers. 
pretty quiet. And there's the sound of his computer. That's pretty quiet. So depending on where you're sitting, uh, it may be more or less quiet. Uh, for example, I was leading a group yesterday and there was a, a street outside and so you could hear cars going by. If, if, if you're in an environment where there are lots of sounds, see if you can detect the break between the sounds. So example, uh, if there's conversation going on, see if you can notice the silence between words or between sentences. So focus on what you hear, especially detecting any silence relative to sounds, even if there's sound in your environment, see if you can find the quiet. Let's do that for two breath cycles and we'll be done with the meditation. Okay, and when you're ready, you can open your eyes. Austin was so accommodating in that very last part, he would just press the button and then leave a moment of silence so that Odie and I could find it. Thank you, Austin. <laughs> I, I oftentimes forget things and, and something I would like to have remembered, and I thought about it before I did it, but then I forgot about it. Uh, uh, is uh, it can be very helpful sometimes to start by getting a baseline on mm -hmm. where you are in terms of your stress level. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of us operate during the day at a certain level of stress. And if we pause for a second, we can usually plot where we are on a scale of one to 10, one being completely relaxed, 10 being just stressed out of our regards. And, uh, and then to, to do the exercise and to follow up like that. And oftentimes you'll have a, a uh, a noticeable de decrease in the stress level. Mm -hmm. I forgot to do that today, so you'll just have to trust me on that one. <laughs> what I'm hoping is that you can overall have a sense of maybe having calmed a bit. So if, uh, if you were at a six or seven, let's say, in terms of stress, kind of in the middle, a little bit higher than the middle, maybe it decreased to a four or a five, or a three or a four, and uh, that's worth noticing. So. I, I did say I would come back to this, is that for some people, especially when you pause with that part about breathing and mm -hmm. noticing your thoughts and setting them aside, I think especially if you haven't had a lot of experience with yoga or meditation, different forms of self-relaxation, one of the first things that you'll notice is how active your mind is. Mm -hmm. I certainly uh, did, and in a, on a given day or in a given week, sometimes it'll be more or less active even with my meditation. And for some individuals, just noticing that stream of thoughts and how constant, how prolific it is, can actually stir up uh, anxiety. And so I want to acknowledge that sometimes it can uh, actually make you more anxious. Or, or another example I'll tell you is I've got a little bit of pain in my left arm today. And uh, uh, when I did the meditation right now and scanned my body, boy, it was really apparent because I'm operating. You know, if you, I don't yeah, know if I felt... Did you? Did you? Right here. Yeah. Like in my back. Yeah. I didn't notice it, but like sometimes when I sit for too long, I'll get like a cramp. Yeah. 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 I've actually had people complain to me, say, thanks, Dr. Bob. <laughs> I wasn't noticing my back or until we did the meditation. I actually, the meditation really brought out my uh, arm pain, mm -hmm. uh, made it much more apparent uh, right now. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, like operating if you have a mild headache mm -hmm. and you can kind of put it out of the back, in the back of your mind and you operate, let's say, that your work. 
but uh, you're, you're having to kind of forcibly keep it out of awareness mm. to be able to function. Yeah. And it makes me aware there's a backache or a headache, or in my case, an arm ache. It makes me aware of the fatigue that's requ- the energy mm. that's required and the fatigue that follows with that. Yeah. And so it can be helpful just to know that, well, I'm really actually carrying a fair bit of pain today in my left arm, and that's part of where I am. And mm. just to be kind to myself, I, I, I may be a little bit tired, or you with your back. And yeah. So... Uh, it's, it's to make ourselves more aware of our uh, bodies. Um, how'd it go with your heart? Just out of curiosity. Were you able to? No. No. <laughs> Not I, until I put it up. Yeah, yeah. Mine was My very head. faint. Uh, and oftentimes I can't feel it at all. It kind of waxes and wanes. Uh, it is encouraging to put your hand on your chest and realize that you're still alive. That can be that can be reassuring. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Find out that you're not a vampire. Right, 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 right. Um, I think it's helpful to be aware of our bodies because especially in terms of stress, let's say that you or I get angry. We get triggered mm-hmm. to be angry. Mm-hmm. It can be very helpful to have an awareness of anger before it goes over the edge of the falls, so to speak. And oftentimes it'll be, there'll be some physical triggers, some physical mm-hmm. things that I'll notice in my body. If I can catch it soon enough, then I can do something about it rather than just rage. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it does introduce choice to be more aware of our bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just generally speaking, if there are ways that I can reduce the stress on my body, it will typically re- reduce uh, uh, stress in my thoughts, mm-hmm. because the, the two are very connected, the body and the mind are so intimately connected. So we've done an exercise now, and I encourage you to review this video and practice. You can uh, develop something that feels like it fits for you. This is something that I've practiced. It's a kind of a combination of various forms of mindfulness. You can also go online and find all kinds of resources. In fact, if you look up my name, Dr. Bob Weathers, I've got four meditations online that uh, are different links, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, depending on how long you want to meditate. Uh, there's nothing special about them. They're just, you can go there. Uh, UCLA here in the Los Angeles area has a tremendous resource called the Mindful Awareness Research Center. I had to think about it. It's M-A-R-C. Um, and if you go there, they have lots of resources there. Uh, at this point, through beginnings, we have a number of meditations. Austin's been kind enough to upload these various meditations as we do them. And so you'll find resources at Beginnings Treatment Center or on our YouTube site as well. And uh, I don't think it requires for you to be a meditator. In fact, you don't have to meditate to reduce stress. Everybody has multiple ways of, of reducing stress. It's just that there's so much research to suggest that mindful awareness can, if it's built into whatever hobbies we have, cultivating this can actually be a very, I mentioned arrows in your quiver, can be a very helpful tool for managing stress. And it directly goes into being able to to uh, protect our sobriety mm-hmm. in whatever our addictions are. Uh, it's a major uh, support in relapse prevention, so I offer it to you in that spirit. Now, I promised to review, and I'll do a quick job of this, he says, do a quick job of reviewing where we were last week so we can get to, we really were just, we had an exercise to do, and I want to get to that exercise today mm-hmm. um, and spend some time on that. So let me quickly review what we covered last week. We talked about uh, looking at the roots of addiction. We talked about stress. We talked about how it is that addictive behaviors end up serving as an antidote to stress, Mm -hmm. specifically shame. And we've actually discussed that today, is that anything that I can do um, to reduce stress is going to be very important to me because we can't sustain elevations in stress hormones indefinitely. And uh, unfortunately, many of us have been routed into addictive behaviors to do that. So can I find non-addictive substitutes that will serve as remedies to anxiety and stress? Well, we just did one. We just Mm -hmm. did one with meditation. Mm 
Um, uh, we talked last week about, about shame. We talked about shame being the most stressful human emotion. You're welcome to review uh, that podcast. We talked, we defined shame. We talked about shame in terms of the two sides of a coin that shame represents. On the one hand, any threat to social acceptance will stir up shameful feelings inside of me, the threat of rejection. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that is any threat to uh, my being socially accepted will almost always erode my self-confidence. And so a threat to, self, uh, a threat to uh, self-esteem is also one manifestation of shame and they're really two sides of the same coin. We talked about addiction. We talked about the definition of addiction. We talked about the etymology of the word addiction coming from the Latin root addictus, which means to be a slave. And as we did today earlier, uh, uh, we last week went into depth talking about the universality of addiction. If we include behavioral addictions, include substance addiction, uh, we all know addiction intimately. Uh, we defined addiction as of not being able to stop something that hurts us, to mm -hmm. put it really quickly mm -hmm. in English. Okay. <laughs> and the fact is that our addictions affect us in our work, in our school, mm -hmm. in our relationships. Uh, and so, so the upshot of what we covered last week was looking at shame as a psychological root of addiction. So the sad part about that is that in my addictions, whether it's a behavioral addiction like you've shared mm -hmm. or a substance addiction like mine, is if I already start off with an impaired sense of self-confidence, yeah. then as my addictive behavior begins to, to lock in and I can't stop it, that's not going to build self-confidence. If I can't stop my addictive behavior, plus if I'm doing something that I'm ashamed of, yeah. and so really the poor get poor, and we talked about the vicious cycle of addiction last week. And then we ask the question, why not just be able to say no? Why can't we just say no? And it's built into the way that we set this up, yeah. is that if it was straightforward, I would be able to say no. The fact is, is my addictive behavior is an antidote to stress. Mm -hmm. And so unless I come up with some alternative, I'll be pretty much relegated to my addictive behavior. Yeah. We talked about three antidote functions of addiction. We talked about a lot last week, yeah, and we had a lot of conversation <laughs> last week. We talked about three different antidote functions of addiction. One is to either is to numb out. I want to numb out, for example, stress. Mm -hmm. I want to get high, which is, if, for example, if I'm depressed, I want to move out of that and move into an, a more elevated state of awareness. And then thirdly, our addictions oftentimes will connect us with others. Not always, mm -hmm. but many of the individuals I know that, uh, in fact, I was talking today uh, uh, with a group that, that uh, many of us find acceptance, for example, mm -hmm. in adolescence, if I can find acceptance through addictive behaviors, for example, drinking, mm -hmm. uh, smoking marijuana, uh, other addictive behaviors, uh, it, it can be a way to connect. And so there's all three of those serve as very powerful incentives to keep the addiction going. They, our addictions truly are temporary fixes. They do fix something. And what does they fix? They fix stress. They fix mm -hmm. stress. We talked uh, also about how it is that you begin to kind of, where do you find leverage to work with addiction? And one of the things I do uh, with, with the clients I work with is I begin to shed light on the temporary nature of, of these fixes and also the downside of these fixes. Mm -hmm. And last week I talked about three different entry points. I look at the effect of addiction on our relationships. So I use my background in psychology, specifically attachment theory, to look at the, the impact of addictive behaviors on our relationships. I also look at uh, the impact of uh, addictive behaviors on our brains and bodies 
by uh, referring to neuroscience. So I talk a fair bit about uh, what happens in the brain and how it affects our body. And then thirdly, I work a lot around values and meaning and purpose. This really gets us into the spirituality of recovery, mm -hmm. is that, is that uh, in your commitment to your marriage, mm -hmm. in your commitment to your uh, ambitions, your goals, is that most clients, in fact, the way I put it, is that you can't fight something. You can't fight something mm -hmm. like an active addiction with nothing. Mm -hmm. You've got to have something that comes in that motivates you to get out of bed in the morning besides uh, the drug, the drug yeah. or the behavior. And that's where uh, I, I will rely on uh, existential psychology, which really focuses on all of us are meaning uh, seeking individuals, and this is also the basis for spiritual uh, uh, traditions and behaviors, uh, uh, spiritual uh, practice in recovery. And I know very few people in successful, sustained recovery that don't have some um, some active spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. Many people will take what we just did in terms of the mindfulness and wed that. For example, your Christian by faith right. is that they'll wed. Uh, They'll wed a form of meditation or prayer with their with their belief system, and that becomes central to mm -hmm. their recovery. Mm -hmm. It's no accident that here in the United States, where you get the origins of AA and NA uh, uh, in terms of the uh, twelve step movement, that it's rooted very much in belief in a higher power. Mm -hmm. So, people, uh, the wonderful thing about about uh, the twelve step program is that it's open in principle to virtually anything that you would assign to that higher power. So you can assign that to Jesus. Mm -hmm. You might assign that to some other uh, uh, deity. Mm -hmm. You might choose not to assign it to a deity, but something else. Oftentimes people will assign higher power to other individuals in the room, so it will be the interpersonal. Mm. It reminds me of Mother Teresa. When she was asked about her work in the streets of Calcutta, she said that when she looked in the eyes of lepers, children all the way to older people, she saw the eyes of Christ. Mm. So she saw she, her higher power was in every individual that she uh, mm. uh, interacted with, which is extraordinary. We asked the question, and this is where we began to wind down last week. We asked the question, well, with all this information, brain science, attachment mm -hmm. theory, existential psychology, all that we've talked about in terms of the psychological, psychological roots of addiction, shouldn't that be enough to get us just to say no? And if it was all about that, then we could just, you could just hand me a book, and I could hand you a book, we'd read it, and we'd be, I'm good to go, Bob. Unfortunately, it's more complex, and one of the ways that we talk about that is that we're providing information that's primarily, to put it in, the brain, in terms of the brain, primarily is being processed by the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere processes cognitive information, mm -hmm. is able to rationalize, think of things logically, uses language. Um, unfortunately, many of the roots of our stress for example, shame mm -hmm. is primarily not a left brain phenomenon. It's rooted in relationship. And we've talked a lot over time in terms of how it is that shame develops in relationships, oftentimes our formative early relationships, mm -hmm. where the blueprints are laid down in terms of not feeling okay about ourselves. Yeah. And so to tell somebody that's grown up, for example, in a shaming environment where they're disqualified for being Odie or Bob, to tell them to just buck up and get over it mm -hmm. uh, is like drops of water in a bucket. Mm -hmm. It isn't enough, it isn't yeah. enough. It's not a bad idea, it's just not sufficient. One way to understand why it's not sufficient is that insofar as shame and a good bit of what stresses us is a right brain phenomenon, left brain information isn't sufficient to address the right mm -hmm. brain. Mm -hmm. To put it in a different way, it's gonna take a right brain type of method to resolve a right brain type of problem. Mm -hmm. And addiction is as related to the right brain as it is to the left brain. I hope this makes some sense. Yeah. Does this make some sense? Yep. Um, yeah. 
So shame is rooted in relationship. Relationship is primarily um, a right brain phenomenon. I'll give an example. In communication theory, uh, we, we say that this is that 10 per, only 10% of communication are the words that I'm using. Mm -hmm. The other 90% is all the nonverbal. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I can tell you something, and if it doesn't resonate with the, with, with the nonverbal, your, your left brain picks up on what I say, your right brain picks up on how I say it. Mm -hmm. And if the right brain doesn't, if, the, if, if my nonverbal doesn't register with your right brain, you'll actually override the left brain information. Mm. So for example, a child growing up in an environment where they're told that they're loved, even as they're put down or even abused, that child will have a very confusing world because the left brain is saying this is love. Mm. But the right brain is saying this doesn't feel like love at all. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's... Oh. I'm trying to think of an example, but um, maybe somebody that actually kind of reminds me of how I grew up with a sibling that they, I think the way that they grew up, they thought of uh, picking on each other okay. or putting each other down. Yeah. They took that as if I didn't do this, I wouldn't. I wouldn't like you, pretty much. But me doing this mm -hmm. shows shows you that I like you. Ah, interesting. Does that make sense? So, so I pick on you, therefore I, I like you. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. Or I like you, therefore I pick on you. Right. Some, some version of that. Right. So I interesting. Pick, yeah, yeah, I picked that up. And when yeah. I first got into a relationship... Is that why you always pick on me? Yeah, exactly. You that's like me. Yeah, oh, you really like that's me. That's why I like... Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's why... Um, Odie just shuts the whole system down. <laughs> I mean, excuse me, Austin just shuts the whole system down. <laughs> Keep going, Odie. I'm sorry for interrupting. No, you're fine. And so... I was showing you that I like you. <laughs> and so I brought that into my relationship with my now wife. Yeah. And yeah. she wasn't used to it. No. Obviously. No. Yeah. Yeah. So she... And I needed to get used to that. She would tell me... Uh, why do you do that? Why do I do what? Why do, right. you, why do you pick on me? Why do you do this at XYZ? Are you trying to show off to other people? Mm -hmm. or are you uh, genuinely uh, meaning what you say? And I told her, no, you need to understand that. Unfortunately, I grew up in an environment where if I do this, it means that I like you. If yeah. I don't do it, it means that I don't care about you. Like, yeah. Get away yeah. from me type yeah. deal. So, Yeah. yeah. But yes, me picking on you, that means that I like you. <laughs> <laughs> Your wife didn't grow up with that, so she needs, first of all, it's great what you just did, is that you translate to her what that means, and then you guys can make a decision if if she if she's going to uh, be okay with that. Is it okay for you to like her that way? My guess is the answer was wrong answer, Correct. right? And yeah. so you had to change the behavior. Yeah. But at least it's out on the table. Mm -hmm. Let's do an exercise. That's, that's beautiful. Thank you for that. You Let's do an exercise right now in terms of getting something out on the table. I want to introduce this by suggesting that I just came from a group today, mm -hmm. and there was a man right to my right. I like him a lot, and he's very serious about his recovery. And he said, what do I do to change some of these blueprints? He was quoting me mm -hmm. from our last week's group. And it really ties into what you're saying. The blueprint was laid down. Uh, one of your siblings and you, you guys would tease each other, give each other a hard time, and that was how you liked each other. Mm -hmm. That's the blueprint or that's the template. And his question was, how do you change that? And mm -hmm. so I said, would you be willing to bring that to the whole group? He brought that up with me during break. And he was willing to do that. And we talked about this as a group. Mm -hmm. And so let's just do what we talked about, which is, first of all, and Odie, your example right now is perfect. First of all is getting clear about what the blueprint is. 
and then bringing that to the person you care for most, your wife, mm -hmm. and then making a decision together of whether you want to stick with the old blueprint. Right. And it, it's possible that she could have, yeah. but she didn't want to. Right. And so then you, but now it's up for it's up for being able to change it. You mm -hmm. can't change it if you don't do the first part, which is be aware of it. Right. And you won't know it needs to be changed unless you bring it to the person. Mm -hmm. And so those are really the two things. <laughs> what I said to this individual is I said, you need to probably write it out, get clear about it. And mm -hmm. the second thing is share it with others because it's only when it reaches the light of day and is in relationship that we can change. I feel like that most of the blueprints end up being relationship blueprints. So let's talk mm -hmm. about this for just a second. I want you to think of one of your current, this is the exercise. I want you to think of one of your current or past addictions. I want to ask you to do this uh, once you've identified that addiction. I want to see if you can trace that addiction to how we just defined shame. See if you can trace the origin of that addiction to either not feeling a part of, that is, uh, uh, feeling threatened in terms of being accepted by people that matter to you. Could be your family, could be your peer group, on the one hand. Or on the other hand, uh, uh, not feeling okay about yourself. It's interesting today I asked uh, uh, in the group anybody that had experienced messages uh, that affected their self-esteem. Mm -hmm. One individual talked about his sexuality, how it was shamed in his family. And then I've never had anybody ever say this in a group. He said, he said, he said, uh, my birth parents uh, weren't okay with my existence. Hmm. That was the word that he used. It really stands out to me is that uh, they didn't really want him to be alive. And mm -hmm. so he's grown up with birth parents that uh, that's changed a bit more recently right. with his with his mother, apparently. But to have somebody, you know what I'm talking about, the ultimate stab to your self-esteem is that you don't even want me to be alive. Mm -hmm. And so on a continuum, all of us know about some version of not finding parts of ourselves accepted. In this case, it was all of him. Even mm -hmm. his, his existence was not acceptable, which yeah. is radical. It really hit me hard. So what I'm asking you this to do for just a moment, and then Odie and I will discuss this between ourselves, is can you think of a current or past addiction that matters to you? And how it might be linked in terms of, we're talking about the psychological roots of addiction, how it might be linked to shame. So let's spend a minute with this, and then you can, I, I can talk about it. The theme song from Jeopardy is coming to my mind. <laughs> I don't know why that's coming up. Uh, Austin, can you kick in the theme song? Dun, 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 dun. Please don't. Yeah, thank you. I saw that, Austin. I'll come back to that. Do you want to uh, speak into this? Is this okay, Odie, to ask you? I mean, I... Yeah, absolutely. I, just, I guess I'm um, not too sure how, how to to do that because like that I can say the act of when I was in my behavioral or when I was when I had a behavioral addiction uh, the act after was shameful mm -hmm. I don't know if that mm -hmm. counts or mm -hmm. or you more specifically asking how to trace it back um, from where it the shame started, or I, I'm fine. I'm fine. However, you want to do it. I, I think it works with what you said. Is that as we said earlier with the, most of these addictive behaviors? Let's say that I started off with great self-esteem. Mm -hmm. I didn't, but let's say I did. 
is that if I engage in an addictive behavior, I just I led a group yesterday where the individual said, Dr. Bob, what do I do about, uh, he said, temptation. And I wasn't sure what he was asking. And I mm. said, can you say a little bit more? And what he was talking about is he's had a secret life mm. uh, that he, he doesn't literally have two different personalities, but, right. but he's, he's, he's got a secret life. And he says in that secret life, he's gotten very used to uh, doing things that are shameful. And he doesn't want to go there anymore, but it's almost like that that's what's familiar to him, is mm-hmm. having kind of a double life. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, and what I said to him is I think, I think all of us that know addiction, which would be all of us, right. have things that we don't want to share with our partners or with our parents mm-hmm. or with our children, with other people, our friends, and so on like that. And so in that sense, even if you start off with 100% O.D. Rock's self-esteem, <laughs> is that engaging in shameful behaviors, wouldn't it make sense that it begins to chop away at the foundation of that, mm-hmm. the root of that, to where you'll end up uh, decreasing in self-esteem? Does that make sense? Yeah. So even if that was the case... Why don't I share what I was thinking? And if it brings up something for you, fine. Because it, you know, I think all roads lead to the same thing here is that shame mm-hmm. really does relate to either maintaining our addictive behavior. That's mm-hmm. part of the vicious cycle of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or in this case, uh, or, uh, serve as an origin. I'll tell you real quickly, and I've talked about this in various ways. I grew up with parents that were, uh, to be kind, were very preoccupied mm-hmm. uh, a lot. And so... I, uh, I found that one way, or at least, I'm not even sure this worked, but I tried it. I, 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 I tried one way to get their attention was to do really well, to be very competent. Okay. And so that manifested, I'll use school as one example, uh, 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 as I began to excel in school. Mm-hmm. And some part of that was wanting to get their positive attention because I just couldn't seem like I could get their attention mm-hmm. for whatever reason. I don't need to demonize my parents to say that I think they were just preoccupied. But I was wanting, I was not okay with that and I wanted to get their attention. And so I set very high standards for myself and that didn't seem to work. Mm-hmm. Um, that was very disappointing to me. And I remember uh, particularly conversations with my mother at a few uh, central points across my childhood and into adolescence where I was like, wake up and smell the coffee. <laughs> I want you to see this. And it just wasn't effective for whatever mm-hmm. reasons. And I know those reasons uh, better now. Mm-hmm. But then I adopted another behavior and it was along the way and it was kind of related and kind of not related is that if I could maybe be what she wanted me to be, if it wasn't to be a star, let me just say this with both my parents because it seems like it applies to both, Mm -hmm. is that maybe I could just be what they wanted. And so there's another image for me is of kind of bending myself into a pretzel. Mm. And so it would be trying to find if I could comply with what they wanted, maybe then I would get the attention I wanted because it didn't seem to work if I was a star. Mm -hmm. And so I worked on the pretzel motif. And now I'm going to set my parents aside. So I, I laid the foundations there. I didn't feel good about myself. Well, if I'm a star, maybe you'll mm-hmm. like me. Right. Well, it didn't really work, so I still didn't feel that good about myself. Well, if I'm a pretzel and I'm everything that I think you would like, maybe you'll like me. Maybe I'll get the kind of attention. Whatever happened, it wasn't very effective. wasn't right. very effective. And, uh, and as we're talking with blueprints, it laid down a pattern or a template that I carried well into adulthood. Mm -hmm. So here you have a combination of high standards and bending myself into a pretzel. And um, it kind of sort of worked and kind of sort of didn't through all my schooling and into my early professional career. But what happened at some point is that what you have is you have these antidotes that aren't really being that effective and underneath them 
it's a little bit like treating the symptoms of a disease but not getting down to the core infection. Mm -hmm. And the core infection was something that wasn't getting treated by my antidotes. Mm -hmm. And so entered in, began to drink, and began mm -hmm. to drink more and more, okay. and found some relief. Found some relief in that. Found some relief hanging out with friends and feeling kind of okay about myself. And it was really chemically induced yeah. in great part. And then that begins a course of, of time and, and it began to kind of gradually increase to where the addiction became more and more severe. It wasn't like I woke up one day and was suddenly addicted. Mm. It was kind of a foot in the door and it began to be more and more extreme as, as so oftentimes happens with addiction. So you could look at my addiction just biologically and look at the biochemistry of addiction, but you'd have a large remainder that's not discussed there and I'm discussing it now, which is the psychological part of it makes sense mm -hmm. to me. And the psychological part predates my addiction right. by a long shot. I mean, it starts in early childhood for mm -hmm. me. And behaviors, I wish that, you know, you could put away childish things, right? Like it talks about in the Bible. I didn't. Right. I carried those into adulthood. And those were significant in terms of choice of a marital partner, right. choice of a, a career, a choice of friends, mm -hmm. and eventually choice of addiction. Right. And I say choice of addiction with kind of italics because I don't think that you started off in life thinking, let me just get addicted to this behavior. Right, yeah. I didn't start off by saying, let me just get addicted to substance. But I gradually developed that and became reliant on it. And it really provided, I don't know how this went for you. I suspect I know how it went for you. It provided temporary reprieve. There's like a temporary moment. If I'm feeling yeah. ashamed, this gets back to what you were saying, Odie. If I'm temporarily ashamed, well, I can find... A, a, a moment of, to put it in biological terms, I can find a moment of dopamine surge mm -hmm. or endorphin surge yeah. that gives me a break just for a moment. That's mm -hmm. what alcohol was for me and then mm -hmm. other drugs entered in it and so on. Problem is, is I become addicted to more and more of it and yeah. they become part of the problem because I was ashamed of this. Mm -hmm. Speaking of double life, I was, I was living a double life. Yeah. Kind of psychologist by day, university professor, professor by day, and by weekend and eventually by night, I yeah. was increasingly enveloped in my addiction. So that's a bit of how the cycle goes. And I'm giving this as an example that may be illustrative for those of you that are participating to look at some of the psychological roots of your addiction. Many of you will have already reflected on this, uh, but it can be of great value. It can be of great value. In fact, there was a comment here. Somebody said, shame can be a motivator. Mm -hmm. uh, my shame motivated me towards addiction for some period of time, yeah. but the pain eventually got bad enough in, in the 12-step programs, you talk about hitting bottom. Right. I hit bottom with my addiction enough so that the shame actually did motivate me. I wanted mm -hmm. to live some other way than being constantly would in shame be, or... Would mm -hmm. that be guilt more or shame? Because I know we usually mm -hmm. talk about yeah. shame yeah. being one side of the coin and then the other side is guilt. Yes. Yeah. Right, yeah. I guess. I felt both. Both? I felt yeah. both. I felt... I felt, uh, I felt more shame than guilt. I felt yeah, bad about yeah. what I was doing, but the bad about what I was doing was uh, less about a behavior, more about me at some point. Right. I thought, what are you doing, Bob? So Bob became the problem, not the drinking. Yeah, that's how it, Does it, make, that's it, how it went for me as well. It starts off as a behavior, yeah. and you feel bad about it, and you're kind of secretive about it, and you don't want people to know about mm -hmm. it. And eventually, it's like it begins to reflect on your own sense of yourself. Yeah, exactly. And at that point, it's crossed over into shame. Mm -hmm. Austin, there were a couple of comments I wanted to come to here. Let me just read these real quickly. Same person. Mm-hmm. Uh, this individual says there can be a high attached to defying death. Uh, I completely uh, agree with that. 
talked about a lot about this with the individuals I work with most of all are individuals that are recovering from severe substance addiction, most oftentimes, most oftentimes methamphetamine hmm. and or heroin, and many of them have overdosed and been brought back. Uh, many of them, uh, it's not many of them, almost all of them have lost friends to addiction. It's very tragic. And so death is a constant uh, companion uh, for those with severe addiction. And they talk about this, and I have my own version of this, knowing this, even with a hangover. But when you talk about overdosing and then coming back, there's a rush that comes with coming back. Yeah. Uh, I've, I just talked in the last couple of weeks with a group where a couple of individuals talked about overdosing, being revived, and then immediately celebrating the being revived by using more substance. Wow. And it sounds ironic, and it sounds yeah. crazy, but it's like that that's how much of a high it is. It's like, wow, I'm back again. Mm -hmm. Let's celebrate yeah. by getting getting high. Uh, there's much more we could say about that. Maybe we can come back to that, but I absolutely. The second comment is there's a high from experiencing pain, guilt, and shame, then rebounding to normalcy. That's a great, that's a great comment. I'll tell you this, it's tied into what you and I were talking about, is if I, can, if, I can if I can recover from pain, guilt, and shame, as you say, by virtue of my behavior, by my addictive behavior, I'll do that. Mm -hmm. And so that feels good. I'll tell you what really feels good mm -hmm. is he's sitting here right, near, right now with me. As Odie is in <laughs> sincere recovery, and I am too. What feel, really feels good is to find an authentic, non-addictive basis mm -hmm. for not feeling ashamed. Yeah. That really feels good. Mm -hmm. That's, that, and so you move from um, a state, a momentary state of feeling relief with the addictive behavior to a more permanent uh, 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 foundation. We've talked about this in terms of the distinction between states and stages. I can find a momentary state of relief by my addictive behavior for mm -hmm. me with alcohol, let's say or another addictive behavior. And what would it be like to have that be a more permanent plateau? Mm -hmm. Well, I can find that in, in committed, uh, sustained recovery, uh, because thankfully the brain will recover, the heart, the mind, the yeah. spirit will recover given time. And now you have an authentic basis for really feeling mm -hmm. gratitude and joy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, here's another comment. Let me read this. Ah, this is good. I had a friend that overdosed on heroin, and what he said in the hospital after uh, being revived is that, quote, I'm unstoppable, unquote. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was talking with somebody, I'll, I'll, we'll wrap up with this. I was talking to somebody today about this, is I'm aware of, of my own experience with active addiction, and this is painful for me to acknowledge, but it's the truth of feeling the inflation of addiction addictive behaviors, there's a way of kind of, if you get away with it, like I was talking about earlier about the double life business, if you get away with it, there's kind of a sense of being bulletproof. Mm -hmm. And I'm ashamed to say that in hindsight, but yeah. there was a sense of that until the whole thing kind of came crashing down and it had to be dealt with. And so that's some version of I'm, 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 I'm unstoppable. So whether it's recovering from literal death mm -hmm or uh, uh, a psychological state of guilt and secrecy and shame that are attached to that, there could be a state of, of actually uh, being inflated like a balloon rising up, and it's, uh, it's artificial for sure. There's one more comment, it looks like. How long does it take to convince others that you're serious about recovery? That's a great question. <laughs> I'll answer that in twofold, and then we'll wrap up for today. Um, most often the individuals I'm working with are in early recovery and almost all of them are sincere about it. Not all of them, but most of them. In fact, I invite for people to share if they're not, 
because they're safe to talk about that uh, in our groups. But most are. And almost all of them, because of the early stage of recovery, are experiencing symptoms of what we've talked about before, post-acute withdrawal syndrome. So after I get over the acute withdrawal in my body, I'm left with the psychological topsy-turvy mm -hmm. things that go on in early recovery. And so most everybody that I work with in early recovery has people in their lives, their husbands, their wives, their parents, etc., telling them that they don't believe that they're in recovery because mm -hmm. they look yeah. like they looked when they were using and even when they're not, and that's very discouraging. Yeah. So the question again is, how long does it take for people to believe I'm in recovery? How long does it take to convince others that you're serious about recovery? I do have this sense of that. And uh, you know, we talked earlier about the right brain to right brain communication. Yeah. I think people can sort that out. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to say this, a lot of the people that love us most have been wounded by our addiction. Yeah. And so I, I want to say it takes as long as it takes for them to get around the bend. Mm -hmm. And we've had a lot of discussions here about how to make amends. Uh, we've had a lot of discussions about forgiveness. And it takes as long as it takes for loved ones to be able to forgive us for what we've yeah. done in active addiction. That's true. And I also go back to the earlier conversation today about right brain to bright, right brain. I think somebody can tell if you're uh, telling the truth or not. And time will tell once they've recovered from all of the infidelities, all of the betrayals of trust that go hand in hand with addiction yeah. is that sincere recovery uh, communicates. The Bible talks about deep speaking to deep. Mm -hmm. I do believe that the depth of sincere recovery does speak to those that have eyes to see and ears to hear over time. Yeah. And I actually think that it has far less to do with what you say than what you do. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, in fact, I talk a lot with clients about this and they'll say, people are just over the boy cried wolf. Mm. I'm really sincere this time about my recovery for the umpteenth time. Yeah. And a lot of people I work with, young men and young women will say, I don't, I don't even say anything. I just let my behavior speak for itself. Mm. Yeah. And I think that that's really kind of a right brain to right brain phenomenon. And, and it comes when it comes. I, I really counsel the people I work with to be patient with their loved ones because of the wounds to trust that are part and parcel of addiction, to not be impatient with them. And, uh, and I also support them because it can be very discouraging when you're sincere about recovery yeah. and people keep being inquisitive. Did you use, did you do, whatever like right. this? And that goes hand in hand with it. But I, I, I try to normalize that, is that it's to be expected. You've yeah, hurt people that exactly. don't trust you. Yeah. And given time and giving enough track record, there can begin to be trust. Yeah. There's one other piece of this. I know in my own recovery, it took me about nine months of recovery from alcohol and other drugs to get back to a baseline of where I felt like I was normal Mm -hmm. relatively normal again yeah. and in knowing the most significant relationships in my life including the woman I'm now married to it was right about that time that there stopped being so much vigilance about my uh, relapsing mm. it was like it uh, is like I, I there was enough self-confidence and mm -hmm. enough momentum in my recovery about nine months down the road that it didn't need to be discussed mm -hmm. anymore but it wasn't mm -hmm. about my saying we're good now or I'm okay mm -hmm. it was about it communicating through my behavior does mm -hmm. that make sense yeah I can relate to that it took um, well actually it's still a little bit for me it'll come up now and then sure yeah it does for me too yeah, it does exactly. for me too it does but, it doesn't uh, ever go away there's the wounds are there right. there was the scar tissues there for sure but it took maybe a year for me yeah. a little bit over a year yeah. Yeah. and yeah. you know one of the things that helped my wife and i is uh i didn't know what to tell her when she would ask me yeah. uh, you know she, 
sincerely, are you still, are you doing good? How is it going? This and that. And I would tell her that everything's fine. I'm doing okay. And she'd have difficulties believing. Yeah. And the only thing I could really tell her was, well, I, I can tell you and tell I'm blue in the face, but yeah. I think right now the best thing that you could do is just ask God. Mm-hmm. I would, is what I would tell her. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah, I like that. that. That's, yeah, that's that helped a lot. Putting it in, a, putting in a deeper context, putting it yeah. in a spiritual context. Something came as I was listening to you right now, and I'll share this, see if I can get this back. It came up last night as I was working with an individual that I care a lot about, and working with this relationship that he's in. Mm-hmm. And something he shared, I think, has a lot of wisdom. Uh, and I'll share it with you all. I think you would appreciate it. And I'll leave him anonymous beyond just what I'm sharing, is that it can oftentimes be encouraging it's going to sound paradoxical. It can oftentimes be encouraging to the people that matter most to us for us not to say necessarily that we're okay, because they've heard that before, mm-hmm. but to say, but to actually self-disclose our struggles, our challenges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, for example, if I have a return to craving, let's put it in the context of what we talked about earlier today. Mm-hmm. If I'm exposed to stress and I find myself craving a drink mm-hmm. or whatever my behavioral, uh, you know, whatever my addictive behavior is, to share that with a loved one to say, I was tempted to do this, but I didn't, mm-hmm. yeah. actually will actually uh, communicate more confidence, I think, uh, yeah. it, because they trust that you're not afraid to reveal vulnerability. Mm-hmm. That was exactly the term we used last night. Mm-hmm. This individual was able to be vulnerable with his partner, mm-hmm. and his partner was able to accept that and actually trust that more than saying, I'm fine, fine, fine. Mm-hmm. I think the, the fine, fine, fine oftentimes has gotten associated with, with untruth, with betrayals of trust, whereas the vulnerability, you could do a lot worse than be vulnerable with your partner around how it goes in terms of recovery. Mm. If I can recommend a resource for all of you to check out, all of Brene Brown's uh, writings, her books, her uh, TED Talks on YouTube, etc., really emphasize the primacy of vulnerability as one um, I don't want to put this one healing factor for shame. I want to say that next week we're going to be talking about the way out of shame. We'll be talking about the healing of shame. And uh, I hope to remember to talk about vulnerability. Vulnerability, the word comes from the Latin root vulnus, and vulnus simply means wound Hmm. in Latin. So for you to bring your wound, for me to bring my wound to my partner, to bring that vulnerability, actually uh, can be a statement of self-esteem. I feel okay enough about myself to risk being vulnerable with you. Because yeah. you know when you don't feel good about yourself, that's where the secrecy comes yeah. in. I'm not going to share that with you. And so going the opposite of that, the, the 12-step program calls it contrary action. I'll do the opposite of that. I'll make myself vulnerable with you. Ironically, even paradoxically, that will actually encourage deeper trust. Mm-hmm. You're willing to be vulnerable with me. Yeah. So we'll come back to this more next week. I, I want to thank you, Odie, for all that you shared today. Thanks for you're being welcome. here always. Thank you. And uh, any final comments or questions that you might have to me, you're welcome to send to me. You can send them to my uh, uh, e- email address, which is located at my website, bobweathers.com. There's a comment section, and some of you write me during the week with questions you have. So if this stirs up comments or questions for you, I encourage you to, to reach out to me. You can also reach out directly to 
ask an addiction specialist. Odie and Austin are good for sending information to me, questions or comments that come up. I want to thank you for joining us. I want to encourage you to come back next week. And Austin, this is for you. I want you to encourage you to bring all your friends, all your family, everybody on your uh, social media accounts, all your Twitter friends, everybody. We want thousands. We want masses. Now come back. Next week we'll be looking at the way out of shame. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you.